Welcome to Open Book Unbound. Hi Claire. Hi Marjorie. How are you today? I've just done a really naughty thing and started the day with a piece of cake. Man, your sugar and caffeine <laughs> levels will be through the roof. If I speak really quickly, it'll be a combination of sugar and coffee all at once just before this podcast. Apologies. But I know you have cake in the house. Have you had it for breakfast too? Come on, admit it. No, oh no, no, no. We had a birthday and a 14th birthday in the house yesterday um, and we had lots of cake last night. But no, I could not face more cake for breakfast. The white chocolate icing that was requested for the topping of the cake just didn't seem to be breakfast food to me. So, But I will Aww. be having a little piece for my 11s. I'm sure. This is where you're missing me as his godmother coming around and demanding to eat some of it for breakfast. If I was there, Claire, I would be eating cake, your cake for breakfast, not my own. So, Well, this week we've got um, an exciting Unbound podcast, which is um, that today would have been Edwin Morgan's 100th birthday, which is so exciting. There are lots of celebrations happening all over Scotland in different ways, unfortunately not in person, a lot of them online. But if you head over to the Edwin Morgan Trust website, you'll see some of the videos and other information that they've got and other things that they're engaging with the public on today. And we're taking the opportunity to have a Morgan Unbound Week 2. We thought we'd start with one of his best known and most loved poems. I think that's fair to say, don't you, Marjorie, that Strawberries is is the one that lots of people mention as their favourite Edwin Morgan poem. Yeah, and it's I, I don't, I should say really quick at the outset, I'm not a Morgan specialist and I didn't know about him before I moved to Scotland. So it's certainly the first poem I ever encountered. But I should add as well, I'm certainly not an Edmund Morgan <laughs> specialist either. So okay. no difficult questions in the feedback, please, this week. <laughs> or no, send us your difficult questions and then we'll have to go and do some research. It would be good That's for us. True. So strawberries. There were never strawberries like the ones we had that sultry afternoon sitting on the step of the open French window, facing each other, your knees held in mine, the blue plates in our laps, the strawberries glistening in the hot sunlight. We dipped them in sugar, looking at each other, not hurrying the feast for one to come. The empty plates laid on the stone together with the two forks crossed, And I bent towards you, sweet in that air, in my arms, abandoned like a child, from your eager mouth, the taste of strawberries, in my memory, lean back again, let me love you, let the sun beat on our forgetfulness, one hour of all the heat intense and summer lightning on the Kilpatrick Hills, let the storm wash the plates. Ooh, that's a warm poem for the first thing in the morning for us. Hot and sultry, I'd say, that one. Yeah, but it has such a wonderful feeling of summer to it, too. I don't know whether it's just the word strawberries. I don't know if it brings that to mind for you, but for me, you can almost smell the strawberries in this poem. I think it's the word never. There were never strawberries like the ones we had that for me that really just really makes me want those strawberries. That's how memory works, isn't it? Things become superlative in some ways. You know, there was never a summer so hot as the one we did this or there was never a Christmas so special as, you know, I don't know. I feel like memory works to make things, the things that our brains choose to pick 
to remember makes them superlative in some way. So he's tapped into that from the very first line for me. And I was reading something about memory this week, just randomly. And the person who wrote it was saying that our brains naturally have a negativity bias built in. So for the moments that we really want to stick and the positive moments that we really want to stick, we have to sort of actively and intentionally choose to stay in them for sort of 20 or 30 seconds. So I think you get that sense of time slowing down and just the joy of the moment in the way this poem is written. It's funny that makes me think that as a little girl, sometimes I used to think that I want to remember this very moment. I don't remember what it was that I wanted to remember. I just remember actively wanting to remember something. So I'm stuck with the memory of trying to remember something rather than the one thing that I was trying to remember. (laughs) But yeah, no, there's something slow about this poem as well. There's a real sense of time in a different way or a different kind of measure somehow. And temperature as well for me. It really feels hot and warm, this poem. And I don't think it's just the fact it's it's a love poem. The creation of the atmosphere just gives you that sense of those really hot summer days where the pavement's hot to your touch. And maybe it's because there's so few and far between in Scotland that it resonates so strongly. Yeah, and that, I I suppose, he helps with the heat intense and the idea of summer lightning. We'll come back to that. One of the things I wanted to say about the the slowness of it, though, is that although you all can't see it at the moment unless you go to the website and click on the links, the poem is informally a very long, thin poem. And as a poet, for me, that normally requires or is asking of the reader to have some speed to it. So normally that form for me means you read it almost in a kind of breathlessness or quickness about it. Normally, if I would want a reader to take their time, I might space out the poem quite a lot more and certainly give a lot more space between the lines. But there's something that he does about this in this poem that's magic that does make you go slowly. So formally, that's really interesting to me too. But I wonder, particularly about the summer lightning, whether that's a kind of flash to what's coming or is he thinking back? Has he added the lightning as a kind of sign of what's to come, Is that it's not always going to be like that or did you read that just as a description of what was happening i read it as a bit of a device just to bring in more electricity and power and pizzazz i think into what was a a bit of a, a crackling scenario i mean you feel the chemistry in this poem for sure and i i'm not entirely clear that the lightning actually happened or if it's just in there as a device just to intensify that electricity. Yeah, because even, I mean, lines above, he's using words like abandoned and eager and sweet. Those are all words that, and the idea of two forks crossed, which is a sort of precursor to the lightning for me. Yeah, and also a metaphor for something else, surely. He's absolutely giving us his all with the language so that we're really clear how sultry this is. But I wonder too, you know, whether what we know about Morgan now, that he's gay or was gay and that this relationship at the time presumably wouldn't have been seen on as positively as it would be now. Whether that's a reference to that in some way, that there is sort of lightning crackling just out of sight, you know, that there's danger in some way, but that they're in a kind of protected space, that you can create this kind of bubble. But again, that could just be me with what we know now, projecting back onto a poem, which is always dangerous. I think it's difficult not to do that. I mean, I was looking to see when this was written and it was published in 1968. And so when I was reading that language, that sweet, abandoned child, for me, I wondered if it was a nod to sort of carefree youth 
innocence. But he also would have maybe known the danger of publishing. Yeah. I mean, it's not really dangerous, but the idea of a, an admission of some kind, which again, today we would never blink at or consider an admission, but it would have been at the time. And so to create something that's so sultry and so delightful for something that would have been considered certainly not something that you should discuss in public was brave, but also acknowledging that kind of bubble that you have to create around yourselves in order to let these things carry on or be what they actually naturally are. I think one of the other things that really strikes me about this poem is that the language is so simple and he conveys such strength of feeling and such vividly drawn scene. But there's no tricky metaphors and there's no difficult language. And I think it's a, it's a lovely poem to approach and feeling you're getting something out of um, without having to you know tackle what can sometimes be sort of hard work to feel you're getting to what the poet is conveying. Yeah, and in fact, even I was just looking at the form of it again, there's no punctuation, there's nothing to hold us back. You know, there's no place where we're naturally asked to stop, particularly as a reader or a listener, where just one thing flows into the other, which works both for the subject matter of the poem, but also just works in some ways at putting us at ease so that we just carry on without thinking, must stop there. I wonder how that phrase works. It doesn't really matter. They all kind of go together, if that makes sense, which is which which puts us at ease, I think, in some ways. And that's sometimes when you're reading something aloud, the lack of punctuation can sometimes be tricky. You know, where do you stop to take your breath and, and where do you naturally pause? But I think, as you say, with this poem, there's just an ease to it that lets you just make those decisions as you go through it, as you wish. Which is a delight as a reader, too. And that last line, I mean, what a kicker of a last line, let the storm the plates is gorgeous it's that kind of let it be what it is you know let yeah. let's not worry about the outside world let's not worry about the details and as someone who notoriously used to always get grief for having to wash the plates before i went to bed from friends i love that idea of nope this doesn't this isn't this takes precedence it's more important so yeah i love it and i think that's the line that i always remember from it that and the crossed forks for some reason are the two bits of it and the strawberries obviously but but i take away the crossing of the forks somehow for me is a kind of wonderful image of we're putting this down now and getting onto the real work at hand this afternoon which is being in love yeah and for me as well just in our current situation it kind of made me think it's easy not to notice those little special moments in life just thinking back to, to you as a little girl thinking oh this is a special moment I, I need to try and remember this but I wonder if, if being in lockdown makes us a bit better at noticing those little moments and sort of clears the mind and clears the space better just to let you notice more in things like I think we've talked in the past in podcasts about birdsong and blossom on trees and things like that I wonder if lockdown is giving me a better appreciation of these little moments I wonder if we should swap now to not an Edwin Morgan piece, but an introduction to his work by Liz Lockhead, who um, has written it as part of these wonderful pamphlets called the Edwin Morgan Twenties, being published by Berlin. And Liz has written the introduction to the Scotland one, and they're 20 poems. They're five pamphlets, 20 poems each on different subjects of his work. One is Scotland, there is love, there's space and spaces, menagerie and take heart, all introduced by well-known authors that we know and love and read in our groups. This one is Liz's introduction and we're grateful to her and the Edward Morgan Trust for, for allowing us to read it as a way of introducing ourselves to his work. There is a famous 1980 painting by Sandy Moffat called Poet's Pub. This composite portrait, set in an amalgam of a few favourite Edinburgh haunts and houses, came from separate preparatory studies 
made of the major Scottish poets in the late 1970s, ranged around the central figure of Hugh McDermott, holding court are Norman McCaig, Sorley MacLean, Ian Crichton-Smith, George Mackay-Brown, Sidney Goodser-Smith, Robert Geiriach, Alan Bold and Edwin Morgan. In reality, though, I can't see Morgan fitting into this gathering. Not the pubable or clubbable type. While on friendly terms with all of these near contemporaries, after sharing a platform at a public reading, he'd much more likely have been on the second last train home to Glasgow than wreathed in argument, feuds and flightings, nips of whiskey and a masculine fug of tweedy pipe smoke in Abbotsford, Milnes Bar or the Café Royale. In this painting, Morgan isn't part of the central group, but off to the side, his gaze looking outward, elsewhere. As a Scottish poet, eccentric, but major. The title of one of his best collections, From Glasgow to Saturn, just about delineates the range of his subject matter. At odds with the values of, although as an only son, dutifully bound to, his douce, conservative, Protestant, prosperous parents. In his early poetry, he struggles towards the freedom and release he found when, at the age of 40, in 1960, he moved out to the other side of the city and came into his own, both falling in love and finding his voice, which was many voices. A second life, 1968, proved him a virtuoso of nearly every form going. Almost to the very end of his long life, he'd write everything from free verse to sonnets, concrete poems, sound poems, demotic dialogues, dramatic monologues, sometimes in the voice of the non-human, something that did not have a voice till his listening imagination found it. Morgan was a shapeshifter and a time traveller. He translated Beowulf. He was modernist, European, experimental always, yet he credits the Beats and other American poets of the middle of last century with granting him the exhilarating permission that poetry could be anything. Morgan was made Scotland's first macker, or national poet, of modern times in 2004, at the age of 84, just in time to write the poem to be read at the opening of the new Scottish Parliament building that year. Taking his cue from the old mackers who tickled a Scottish king's ear with melody and ribaldry and frank advice, he dished out his own truth to the new parliamentarians, who had not wholly the power, not yet wholly the power, insisting that when this poem was read out, much emphasis had to be given to the not yet. Measured, magisterial, this work cried out to be included in the Scotland anthology. Will we stop there for a moment? Do you know this painting by Sandy Moffat? In preparation for today, I googled a picture (laughs) of it, but I didn't know it before, no. I wonder, are there any women in it? Because that's the list that sort of suddenly made me think, hang on, it's interesting that there isn't a woman in her list anyway. Even in 1980, that's a sort of strange omission, or maybe it isn't, maybe I've got a different perspective of what 1980 would have been like. And I'm just trying to think back to whether we were taught or read any female poets in this sort of era, and I can't 
think of any at the moment. But the idea that Morgan didn't really fit into the gang isn't a particular surprise, is it? He's so varied in his work and so funny and energetic. Just has such a variety of the kind of voices he uses that sometimes you imagine that that must be the man, in which case he'd be a great party goer. You know, someone who could hold the room with all these different energies and voices. Anyone who could dream up the poem, the Loch Ness Monster poem, <laughs> would have yeah. to be a lot of fun. And it just really fits with, with that little part that we've just read in Liz Lockhead's introduction where she says that he was granted the exhilarating permission that poetry could be about anything. Morgan's sort of breadth of form and style and theme really gives you permission to not get stuck in a voice or to talk about, to write only about one thing. As a poet, and lots of poets really, that I know really admire his work, I think it's that permission giving. You can try one thing one week and next thing in the other, and you don't necessarily need to know that it's a poem by someone or by me. You're allowed to try different things, which is a real freedom, I think, that we don't often hear or see. And I wonder if a lot of that came through his experience as a translator, where he had to take on different people's voices. He had to leave Glasgow University halfway through his degree course to take part in the war, the Second World War. And I know that when he came back to study, he wasn't able to write. And he wasn't able to write during his time away from university, during his time in the army. He used translation as a way back into his writing. And I wonder if it was that taking on different voices and finding a way to express those voices through his translation that gave him such a breadth of voices in his own work. Shall we carry on with this? the next bit of Liz's introduction? isn't as long, but it kind of takes us into discussing the poems in a nice way, I think. Memorably, it was said of Morgan that he was fueled by the intrinsic optimism of curiosity. In his poetry, hope and realism are not at odds. There's no denial of misery, violence, pain, but they're never given the last word. There is blistering anger in the Glasgow sonnets and the flowers of Scotland, Equally clear-eyed, all the more moving for the restraint of its stark documentary realism, death in Duke Street faces the harshest of facts with the deepest humanity. But to enjoy his playful, deeply creative, always inventive twisting of language and sound, try saying aloud the dialogues Cantnodolia or itinerary. As well as profoundly serious, he was always great fun. I can still see him on his 89th birthday when he was brought over to the Scottish Poetry Library in Edinburgh for the opening of the Edwin Morgan Archive. Simply crisply elegant linen blazer, pale lemon yellow, under it a mock Warhol nod to pop art t-shirt with a metallic gold, silver and red stripe applique of an iconic Tunnock's caramel wafer. But when one looked closer, the name emblazoned there was Glasgow. Edwin Morgan was indeed Glasgow's own. He doesn't belong to Glasgow, though, but to all of Scotland in all times, to Europe, to the whole world, to poetry itself, and, above all, to the transcendent, transforming power of imagination. Some of those poems, like the Loch Ness Monster and the Christmas card poems that we, we, we really couldn't talk about in this podcast properly or read aloud are brilliant fun to look at so I would recommend you go out and find those for sure. That was the first time I'd seen poems written in a shape or out of the normal format of stanza followed by stanza followed by stanza. It really sort of opened my eyes up to oh that's still a poem. Yeah. Shall we read another poem? 
I think we were going to look at the release next. The scaffolding has gone. The sky is there. Hard, cold, high, clear and blue. Clanking poles and thudding planks were the music of a strip down that let light through. At last, hammered the cage door off its hinges, banged its goodbyes to the bantering dusty bricky crew, left us this rosy cliff face, telling the tentative sun it is almost as good as new. So now that we are so scoured and open and clean, what shall we do? There is so much to say, and who can delay when some are lost and some are seen, our dearest heads, and to those and to these we must still answer and be true. Feels like a great poem for these times, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's obviously a poem about scaffolding and those building coming down, or at least that's what I thought it was about. But then it feels like it's about something else. You know, it's a great metaphor for the ways that we finally see the sun again in different ways. We said, open the door and things have changed. That idea, the sky is there, and there's an exclamation point there in the middle of that uh, sentence because the next word doesn't start with a, a capital letter. So the sky is there, hard, cold, high, clear, and blue is all one sentence, but there's an exclamation in, in the middle of it, which feels like it's a, someone pointing, actually saying, look, it's there. Stop what you're doing and look up. It feels quite hopeful. It feels this isn't forever. The scaffolding will come down. The, the recent good weather has really given us that clear blue sky to look up to. Which is a sort of inverse, isn't it? Because we've got this beautiful sky and yet we're really not meant to be out in it. <laughs> I think maybe that's what I was getting at when I, when I was saying there's something hopeful about the work of the scaffolding is done and it's gone and the cage door is off its hinges. It feels like it, it could be a metaphor for something else, like whatever's holding him in. And you can think of lots of things in his life that or certainly one that he might have felt caged in by, that it suddenly is gone, allowing you to be yourself. And this idea that there's so much to say and who can delay, at that point the poem picks up speed, doesn't it? Yeah, for because sure. Because it's got, got these really long lines and then suddenly, now what shall we do? There's so much to say and who can delay and the rhymes are faster as well, so it feels like there's suddenly a rush to do things. What do we think about the end of that? When some are lost and some are seen, our dearest heads... And to those and to these, we must still answer and be true. I, can't, I don't know what to make of that last sort of long line. Well, I was thinking, who are we to be true to? Is it to ourselves? Is it to what we've learned? Is it a sort of call not to go back to what we were before and, and for this cage door and opening up to be a new start? That would work with that idea that we still have people to answer to, but that we have to be true. And the true feels like it's got to be something that's new or some kind of new reality, if that makes sense. And, you know, sometimes a scaffold can be a support holding you up and holding you together. Oh, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I really loved that description of the building as the rosy cliff face. It really made me think of those, you know, those pink sandstone, red sandstone Glasgow tenements. But also the idea that a cliff face, which is a terrifying idea, can be rosy in some way, you know, so that it yeah. plays on both those things that, you know, even the edges of something dangerous and terrifying can be positive or, yeah, seen in a rosy way. So I loved that kind of play on language there. So we... Do a third poem this week, which is really out of form for us. 
But um, since we're having a Morgan week. And um, I love this one. And I think it's it's a real homage to his ability and his skill that he wrote right the way up to the very end of his life with his final collection, I think, just being published a few months before he died. So are you going to read this one, Margie, for us? Yeah, it's called At 80. Push the boat out, compañeros. Push the boat out, whatever the sea. Who says we cannot guide ourselves through the boiling reefs, black as they are? The enemy of us all makes sure of it. Mariners, keep good watch always for that last passage of blue water we have heard of and long to reach, no matter if we cannot, no matter. In our 80-year-old timbers, leaky and patched as they are but sweet, well-seasoned with the scent of woods long perished, serviceable still in unarrested pungency of salt and blistering sunlight, out, push it all out into the unknown. Unknown is best. It beckons best, like distant ships in mist or bells clanging ruthless from stormy buoys. Well, I love that idea of yourself as a boat, you know, that we are only timbers that are leaky and patched, but sweet and seasoned well, rather than sort of the person in the boat, you know. 80-year-old timbers. And that idea that, you know, just like go for it. It has a real kind of go for it feel, which feels a lovely poem to read just now because we're not allowed to go for it. And we're all kind of, this feels that there's so much fear in the air. And obviously we can't go out and endanger other people. But I think that idea of taking risk at the end of your life feels so positive. You know, for me, it was what risks and adventures are coming for 80-year-old Morgan. You know, so often when we're encountering people in their 80s, there is so much fear and that sort of life seems to get smaller and smaller. Your contacts get smaller and smaller, your kind of routines and even your sort of physical routes through a city or through the places that you live get smaller and smaller. So the idea that, you know, that we should do the opposite, go into the places that we haven't been, we haven't been able to and can't see. You know, the idea that even though we're old, we can still guide ourselves through the boiling reefs is a wonderful image. And it certainly is I would love, you know, it's, that's what I, what I hope for in my 80s, rather than having a much smaller life, having a bigger life in some ways. This poem for me feels like you do get a little peep into his personality and he comes across as a glass half full type and quite defiant and undaunted by age. You know, it really endears him to me. I particularly love that idea that unknown is best because we get so kind of hooked into our lives, you know, and our routines and our comforts and our safety points. And particularly what one of the things I worry about post lockdown and post virus here is that we'll all live in a world of fear, you know, that everything, because we're so kind of accustomed to it in the last month or so, frightened to be near other people, frightened to touch anything and all those sorts of things, which are right, because we're trying to prevent, you know, other people getting ill, particularly vulnerable people getting ill. But I worry that the lasting, one of the lasting things from this will be that we are frightened of each other. You know, the idea that unknown is best is the opposite of what we're being told just now. So I feel like it could be a good counteract to what we're living through. And that line, unknown is best, is the one in the whole poem that jumps out at me. I would say that I'm not good with unknown. I like to know what's happening. I like to know what the plan is. I've always been like that as a personality trait. And that sort of almost has a courageous strength to it that makes you think, oh, well, maybe I should try the unknown. You know, maybe I should have a little go at doing something that's not planned or, you know, is more spontaneous and that. And somehow he seems to fill you with just a bit of courage in this poem. Definitely 
that idea of beckoning and when he says the unknown is beckoning best i think actually it's him that's beckoning us to try it to not be so set in our kind of routines and ways and the idea that it's beckoning like distant ships in mist that's not necessarily a positive image but by the time we get to the end of the poem i think well i'm with him you know yeah yeah the distant ships in the mist have all the glory and that's where i want to be rather than on shore in a storm you know so i think he he does manages to take us with him somehow it's almost like a rousing speech that you'd make to men going over the top you know or Which I suppose, you know, at 80, you're facing the unknown, right? We're all facing the unknown. It's just that it maybe becomes more apparent at 80. And I also love the way that he manages to make that experience of growing older, which is universal to, to all of us, so individual to him. Mm. But you feel still part of his story, part of his poem. And, he, and he's saying it's not about getting to the good stuff. Because that, you know, that line about, We'll keep good watch always for the last passage of blue water we've heard of and long to reach. But mm-hmm. no matter if we get there, he's not saying we need to get to the blue passage. Actually, it's about the journey that, you know, it's that usual thing about it's not the destination, it's the journey. We've got to go out and enjoy that process rather than thinking we'll never get there. And actually, the intermediate bit is the bit that we're to be frightened of. That's the bit that he's encouraging us to be, that distant ship in a mist. Um, so shall we leave it there? I thought one, a nice way to end this part about Morgan is to sometimes in our groups, when we've talked about text quite a lot, and then the discussion has been a bit intense, we kind of read ourselves out with a poem. I thought it might be nice to do that to the little tiny three-liner of his. And Claire, I think you're going to read it for us. Yeah, it's called Kiss Me. Kiss me with rain on your eyelashes. Come on, let us sway together under the trees and to hell with the thunder. So we're going to move to chatting about our week at Open Book, our roundup. Um, And where is it that our newsletter has reached this week, Claire? It's been all over the world again. Thank you to you all for joining us and reading along with us. Yeah, so this week our newsletter has been read, obviously mostly in the UK, but it's made it to the US, Poland, Portugal, Austria and Australia. So um, it feels like the, the tentacles of open book are reaching further and further each week. So thank you for sending it on and we'd love you to continue to do that. And let's see where we can get to which countries we can add to that list next week. We've also had some great successes this week in our groups, our Zoom groups. Our Shetland group in Lerwick moved to an online group, which worked beautifully well. So thanks to Jen Hadfield and, the, and Margie at the library for helping to support that. We've had our very first Zoom group for our Open Door community group. That's an Edinburgh-based group for older people, and they've all managed to tackle Zoom and join up together. They had been doing it by, were they doing it by email before? Yeah, now, they, they were sending around poems and stories and all feeding back their comments by email. But I think they were finding that wasn't quite as satisfying as doing the in-person meets. So they had their first Zoom session earlier this week and it went brilliantly. So thank you to Mary for coordinating all that for us. 
We had I, we had a, um, some feedback from the creative writing group this week. Two of the participants emailed to say how much they enjoyed being in a room with everyone and meeting everyone and getting to know them. And we're also delighted that our Aberdeen ESOL group and our creative writing group from Paisley are getting up and running on Zoom, which is brilliant. They've been not able to meet like everybody else over the last few weeks and I think just missing missing their group. So they've organized to, to Zoom. So that's good news for us. And our Grass Market Community Project group met this week as well. And I think they chatted mostly about dreams from what I can see from the feedback from their group. So I think they had a, a lovely session on Zoom as well. So it's so great for us to see groups that couldn't meet and ha- had to take a pause, finding a way to connect again. And that's all in addition to our usual online open groups that that are open to the public, which we'd love for you to join. There's shared reading on Wednesday and Thursday and creative writing on a Wednesday as well. So you can find the details of how to join those in our newsletter or on our um, website. One of the funny things that came out was that um, if you're in a different time zone, please just check the time zone and the time because someone tried to log into one of the Zoom sessions from Jamaica, but at the completely wrong time and was frustrated, I think, rightly, that we weren't there to join her until she realized that we were in a different time zone. So if you're joining us from even further afield, which we'd love, please just check the, the time where you are and the time where we are and, and write those two. I won't try and tell you how to do that because I'm notoriously bad at that. And I should just say as well that we're hopeful that we will have a Tuesday group um, out of Craig Miller Library Um, which will be open to the public coming online in early May. So if you keep an eye out for that, if Wednesday or Thursday doesn't work for you, there'll be a chance to join us on a Tuesday. Yeah, and as some of our public sessions, um, our sort of regularly meeting public sessions open up again, like the Lerwick one or the National Galleries one, um, there'll be other opportunities to join in slightly different versions of our open book sort of model. The National Gallery one tends to look at some images as well. So if you're interested in doing other things, get in touch and we'll try and figure out which group would make most sense for you. And I think that's all from us this week. So you can get all the information about the groups we've been talking about at www.openbookreading.com. Thanks for letting us be in your ears. We hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now. <laughs>